You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. The book of Acts chapter 18, chapter 18 of Acts brings us into the home stretch of Paul's second missionary journey, a home stretch geographically speaking because there are only two cities that Paul is going to visit before he's done with the second missionary journey, Corinth and Ephesus. And then he's going to land back on the mainland near Jerusalem and go up to the church in Caesarea and greet that. Although it's the home stretch, geographically speaking, only two cities left in this journey, it's not the home stretch, chronologically speaking, because if you'll look at chapter 18, verse 11, you see that the Apostle Paul is still 18 months from home. Only two cities, but 18 months he spends in the city of Corinth. So let me give you sort of an overview of chapter 18, if you will. Chapter 18 of the book of Acts, verses 1 through 17, the Apostle Paul is in Corinth. After he leaves Corinth in verse 18, he travels to Centria where he has his hair cut because he's keeping a vow. Then he sails to Ephesus where rather than being run off, the Apostle Paul is actually invited back. They want him to stay. But he says to them, I'll return to you again sometime if the Lord wills. And he rushes off to sail to Caesarea where he goes up to the church and he visits the church in Caesarea and he gives them, I presume, an update of the entire second missionary journey. And that is the end of the second missionary journey. Two cities, Corinth and Ephesus, 18 months. You'll notice that the two cities that are left on Paul's itinerary are two cities to which he wrote epistles. Uh, Corinth, First and Second Corinthians, and of course the epistle to the Ephesians to the church that was in Ephesus. Acts chapter 18, we're going to cover the first five verses of Acts 18. There's a lot of introduction here, and I want you to follow along with me as I read. Acts chapter 18. After these things he left Athens, and he went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy where his, with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade... They were tent makers, and he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. In these first five verses, Luke introduces us to two new things. First of all, a new city, the city of Corinth. And second, he introduces us to two new traveling companions that the Apostle Paul had, Aquila and Priscilla. Verse 1 says, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. Now let me tell you a little bit about the city of Corinth because this is an interesting city in an interesting location with a lot of interesting baggage that goes with the city. And if you are going to understand Acts chapter 18 and the city of, and the epistles that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, then you'll have to at least understand a little bit about the city of Corinth because the city of Corinth had a tremendous stranglehold upon the church in Corinth. The city of Corinth was a capital city. Do you remember Paul was in another capital city on the second missionary journey? Do you remember what it was? It was Thessalonica. 
Thessalonica was the capital city of Macedonia that Paul came to because of the vision of the man from Macedonia saying, please come help us. Thessalonica was the capital city of Macedonia, but when Paul leaves Athens and he travels the 50 miles across this little narrow land bridge over to Corinth, he enters into the capital city of Achaia. Traveling from Athens to Corinth was a 50-mile trip. Corinth was a capital city of the province of Achaia. It was a city that was a commercial city, unlike Athens. Athens, remember, was the intellectual city. The intellectual capital of Paul's day was the city of Athens. Uh, Corinth wasn't filled with philosophers and intelligentsia and teachers and thinkers. Corinth was a commercial city. Athens was an intellectual city. Corinth was a commercial city. Athens had the philosophers. Corinth had seafarers, merchants, capital city, a very commercial city. It was a, a new city. Corinth had existed on and off for hundreds of years, going back even 600 years before Christ, but it had been destroyed and then rebuilt in these different locations all around that area. The last time that it had been destroyed by Paul's day was 146 B.C. And then it lay desolate for a 100 years. An invading army came into Corinth. They slaughtered all of the men and sold all of the women and children into slavery, and they razed the city to the ground. And it stayed that way for a 100 years until in 46 B.C. Julius Caesar rebuilt the city of Corinth at the location where it was in Paul's day. It was a beautiful city with all kinds of new buildings. When Paul walked into Athens, all he saw were these magnificent structures, this architecture that was hundreds of years old. But when he walked into Corinth, no building in Corinth was over 100 years old. It was a new city, brand new city. It was a wealthy city because it was strategically located. Corinth had 200,000 freemen and 500,000 slaves, a population of three-quarters of a million people in Corinth. On the back of your bulletin insert is a map of this third, second missionary journey. And you can see off to the left-hand side of your, of your bulletin insert how the Paul's journey kind of takes you towards the edge of your insert. None of you have that? How could that have, I've just printed that up this morning. I had that extra hour, the daylight savings times, time gave me. I used it to print up new inserts with the the map right on the back of it. But you're all holding up white pieces of paper. Okay. Picture in your mind. <laughs> Greece. Let me describe to you it to you. Southern Greece is this sort of land mass and it is connected to northern Greece or northern Achaia by a narrow bridge of land that's about four miles wide. To the north of that is Athens, and Paul would have had to have walked along this four-mile-wide isthmus of land down into Corinth. And Corinth was situated right at the base of this narrow land bridge, and to the east is the Aegean Sea, and to the west is the Adriatic Sea. And Corinth, right at the middle of that land bridge, was strategically located to take advantage of all of the land trade, because everything that went by land went from southern Achaia to northern Achaia and right through Corinth. And everything that went east to west or west to east came in in the harbor of Corinth on the Aegean Sea, and goods were transmitted across that land bridge four miles to the harbor which was on the Adriatic Sea to the west. And so Corinth controlled all of the trade routes east to west by sea, north to south by land, and that makes for a lot of wealth. Corinth 
enjoyed that little position. It was filled with maritimers and seafarers and merchants and people from every nationality all over the then known world. They would bring their goods into one port that Corinth controlled and exit them out the other sea. And in ancient times, they would take the ships out of one port port, and they would put them up on rollers and drag them four miles across that land bridge and put them back into the ocean in the other sea. They did that because it was safer and easier and cheaper to do that than it was to sail the dangerous 200 miles down around that peninsula up into the other port. Corinth controlled both of those ports. 600 years before Christ, a tyrant who ruled the area at that time, and I forget what his name was, just off the top of my head right now, he came up with a plan to build a canal connecting the Adriatic Sea to the Aegean Sea so that ships could just go through there rather than having to drag ships and all of their cargo across that four-mile land bridge. That was 600 B.C. It wasn't started until Nero started it, about the time of Paul, 67 A.D. And the canal was never even finished until 1893. It was a project that was 2,400 years in the making. It's kind of like building a bypass, isn't it? (laughs) You'd think they were trying to build a bypass. (laughs) 600 B.C., somebody had the idea. 2,400 years later, they completed the canal across that area. It was not only strategically located to take advantage of trade so that Corinth could get the maximum amount of money out of all of the goods that came and went through that area, it was also strategically located in terms of defense. The city of Corinth in Paul's day sat right at the base of the Acro-Corinth. It was this large uh, mountain, hill, and there's a picture of that on the back of that imaginary bulletin insert that I printed up this morning as well. And that was such an easily defended fortress that they actually called it one of the strongholds of Greece. And that fortress was never taken by storm until after the invention of gunpowder. That's where Corinth was located. When Paul mentions that he came to Corinth, listen to how he describes his coming to the city. Now, you get the coming to the city in Acts 18 from Luke's perspective. Here it is from Paul's perspective, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in, listen to this, weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Why do you think Paul came to Corinth in fear and in much trembling? Corinth was known for two things. Their pride and their immorality. They were a proud city. They were proud because they were a capital city. They were proud because in Corinth, every other year, the Isthmian Games were held, and the emperor would come down from Rome to attend these games. You can imagine living in a city where every time the Olympics were held, it was held in your city. That was the central point for everything. And they could always count on the emperor being in town at least every other year for the games. So they were proud of that fact. They were proud of their culture because in Corinth they had people from every corner of the then known world. People with all of those cultures who would come into the city very diverse, very open, very uh, open about their culture. Very proud people. They had a lot of culture and a lot of history in their city. They were proud because of their wealth. They had money to burn. Money to burn in Corinth. 
a commercial city and a wealthy city. A lot of slaves in Corinth because a lot of people owned slaves. They were very wealthy. Proud of their city, proud of their culture, proud of their wealth, proud of their defense and their security. They couldn't be taken by storm. They couldn't be conquered if they didn't want to be conquered. Everybody just go up to the Acro Corinth and hold out until the army dissipated. They're a very proud city. It wasn't their culture, and it wasn't their money, and it wasn't their security, and it wasn't the fact that they were a capital city that they were most known for. You know what they were most known for? Their immorality. They were proud of their immorality. The city was incredibly immoral. On top of that that mount, that Acro-Corinth, and behind the city was the temple to Aphrodite. We get our, our word aphrodisiac from that word. She was the goddess of love. And during the daytime, over a thousand religious prostitutes would ply their trade up in the temple of Aphrodite. And at night, as the sun went down, so would come all of these religious prostitutes who would descend upon the city and they would ply their trade in the city all night long. An immoral city. So immoral that all of the Roman Empire had a coined a little phrase that they used to describe immorality. Corinthianize. To Corinthianize meant to live a, a lascivious openly, flagrantly, immoral, profligate, licentious lifestyle. To Corinthianize meant to indulge yourself in every form of immorality. A Corinthianite was a word that they used to describe a harlot or a whoremonger. How would you like your city to be known for one thing, and that's immorality, and then to actually have the rest of the world coin a phrase to describe immorality and use your city's name to describe that practice? known all over the world for the spiritual darkness and the immorality that existed in the city of Corinth. It was the Sodom and Gomorrah of Paul's day. Now friends, what does the gospel message do to human pride and to immorality? Now you can see why the Apostle Paul says, I came to you in fear and in trembling. He knew this is the most spiritually dark immoral city in all of the Roman Empire. They were considered immoral by the rest of the Romans, and the Romans were immoral. But this was immorality that would make a sailor gag. This is horrendous immorality. And Paul says, when I came, it was in fear, it was in trembling, it was with great apprehension, trepidation. And the Apostle Paul, as he approached Corinth, he said, I'm going to keep my message simple. Christ and the cross. I'm going to decide to know nothing among them and tell them nothing except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But what does the gospel do to human pride? The gospel tells me I have nothing to be proud of because I have nothing to offer to God. And I may have a lot of things that, humanly speaking, I can be proud of, but they're just filthy rags before the Lord. They're nothing before the Lord. I'm so lost I can't save myself. I can't come to Christ without being drawn. I cannot believe. I cannot change my behavior. I cannot change my attitude, change my mind. And in my flesh I can do nothing to please the Lord. And so the message of the cross is the message of a hopeless, desperate, needy, depraved, and wicked world that desperately needs to be saved but can't save itself. That destroys human pride. When you preach the cross, all human pride goes right out the window. You have nothing left. Because before you can come to the Lord... You have to be flat on your face and humbled before Him. But not only does the Gospel destroy human pride, the Gospel calls for a moral lifestyle. It takes immoral people and makes them moral people. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, 
This you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or a covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. You formerly were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, so walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. The gospel takes the immoral person and requires them to live a holy, above-reproach lifestyle and to cast behind them all of their immorality, their wickedness, and their deeds of darkness. Paul was coming into a city that was proud and immoral with a message that would assault their pride and their immorality. And he says, I came in weakness, with fear, and with much trembling. Great apprehension. Great pause. But the Apostle Paul didn't walk away from the opportunity to minister in Corinth. Chapter 18, verse 1. After these things, he left Athens and he went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having received from recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. The Apostle Paul, when he came to Corinth, he describes it as with fear and much trembling because he knew he had a gospel message that was going to assault these people, was going to offend them, it was going to perhaps turn them off. And as it turns out, the church in Cor- the, the Christians, the people who became Christians in Corinth and the church in Corinth never quite got over the immorality that had so plagued their lives. I'm going to ask you to do something that I seldom ask you to do, and that's to turn somewhere outside of the book of Acts this morning. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Keep your finger in Acts chapter 18. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says it is actually, writing to the Corinthians, he says it is actually reported that there is immorality among you. This is in the church. He's writing to the church, not to pagans in the city of Corinth. He's writing to the church. It's actually reported that there's immoralities among you. And immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, the pagans, that someone has his father's wife. And you've become, look at that, arrogant, puffed up, prideful. Notice that? Immorality and pride. And even in the church in Corinth, they were proud of their immorality. Chapter 5, verse 2, you've become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Turn over to chapter 6, verse 9. Paul had to write to them and remind them, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, such were some of you. Adulterers, fornicators, effeminate, homosexuals, swindlers, covetous, liars, idolaters. Some of you were like that, Paul said. That's their background. But then he says in verse 12, or verse 11, but you were sanctified, you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Look at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. 
Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Why did Paul have to say that to the Corinthian church? Because they were immoral. And the immorality was even inside the church. Every other sin, Paul says, verse 18, that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own, for you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. By the time Paul wrote the second letter to the Corinthians, not much had changed. He says in 2 Corinthians 12.21, I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I will mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of their impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. You say, Jim, it sounds to me like the church in Corinth had a problem with morality. The church in Corinth had more problems than they had people. You read the first epistle to the Corinthians and you find out there were divisions among them. They were proud of themselves and of all that they had. They were proud of their spiritual gifts. They were placing confidence in human wisdom, human ability, human oratory, rather than in the simple gospel message preached. They had immorality in the church that was not being dealt with. The people themselves were an immoral people. They were suing each other. They had, were all confused about divorce and remarriage and marriage and virginity and virgins and all of those subjects. They were eating meat that offended each other, didn't care about their brother's conscience. They made a mockery of the Lord's Supper. It was a time of gluttony and drunkenness. When it came to spiritual gifts, they were so messed up they didn't know top from bottom, right from left. It was the biggest expression of selfish pride and arrogance and, and self-centeredness that you can possibly conceive of. And in chapter 15, we find out they were even denying the resurrection of Christ. That's just the first epistle. You get to the second epistle, and guess what? The entire church has turned on Paul. Some false teachers came into the church and they actually led the Corinthians away from their love and their loyalty to Paul. They accused him of every conceivable sin that you can imagine. They said he was sexually immoral, homosexual. They said he was deceitful. He was after their money. They slandered him. He said he's not really an apostle. Oh, he, he's, he's a big talker in his letters. He writes you these letters and he's a big talker, but his personal presence is unimpressive. He's not a good preacher. He's not even a true apostle, they said. And the Corinthians were beginning to believe this and their love and their loyalty had turned away from the Apostle Paul and he writes the second epistle to defend his integrity and his ministry and his love for that church. And all of these problems and all of these attacks came from a church in which the Apostle Paul spent 18 months of his life. 18 months with these people. That's the second longest amount of time that Paul spent in any city. The only city that he spent more time in was Ephesus. 18 months with the Corinthians and three letters. First and second Corinthians we have, and we know from those two letters that there was a third letter that Paul wrote to them. The first epistle to the Corinthians has 16 chapters. The second epistle to the Corinthians has 13 chapters. That's more apostolic correction, instruction, and attention given to any church in all of the New Testament. Take the book of Romans and times it by two to one church. He spent 18 months there, 29 chapters of instruction, and what did he get? Problems. Nothing but problems from the church in Corinth. Now compare this to the church in Philippi. How long was Paul in Philippi? 
seems like just a couple of weeks. And then he was run out of Philippi. Did they have problems? Philippian Christians didn't have problems. Paul writes to them, and you can just feel him flowing out his love and his praise for these people. I mean, he loved that church, and the Philippians sent him money. They supported his ministry by prayer. They even, at the end of his life, sent Epaphroditus to go minister to Paul while he was in prison at the end of the book of Acts. No problems with that church. They had a phenomenal relationship, an excellent church. Compare it to Thessalonica. How long was Paul in Thessalonica? He was in the synagogue for three weeks. Probably a few weeks after that, he was run out of Thessalonica. He was there long enough to receive two love offerings from Philippi. So let's say he was there for three or four months. And when he writes to the Thessalonians, do they have problems? Paul says, you've become an example to everybody else of true faith and brotherly love. Everybody's talking about you because from you, the gospel has gone forth through all of Macedonia and Achaia so that I don't even have to say anything about the church of Thessalonica. And yet in Corinth, he was there for 18 months. He wrote two letters and they had nothing but problems and they turned on him. As far as I know, they never got their situation, they never got their problems dealt with. It's no wonder that the only time the Apostle Paul ever said he was depressed is because of the church in Corinth. I despair even of life. They were a thorn in his side from day one. And friends, here's what I notice in Acts chapter 18, and this I think is a good lesson for us. You will invest time and energy and effort and resources and materials and service into people who will turn on you, who will show nearly no fruit for all of the time and effort that you spend on them. And if you've ever been in ministry or ever served other people, you'll notice this. Some people you can take and spend a little bit of time teaching them and discipling them and ministering to them, and they go on and produce fruit a hundredfold. Incredible Christians. Guys like, uh, uh, people like uh, Paphroditus, who Paul just had spent a little bit of time with. Other people are like the church in Corinth. You spend 18 months of your life with them and you get nothing in return. Not that we're in ministry to get anything in return. But some people are just black holes. The church in Corinth was an emotional, spiritual, draining black hole upon Paul and upon his ministry. Only time he ever said he was depressed was over the church in Corinth. Well, that's a little bit about the city of Corinth, but I want you to notice the second thing that Luke introduces us to, and that is to two traveling companions of the Apostle Paul, Aquila and Priscilla. Verse 2 says, He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, and Aquila apparently had been born and raised in Pontus and then moved to Rome where he met Priscilla because we're not told where Priscilla was from. But Aquila was a Jew from Pontus and he went to Italy to Rome with his wife. Then they had recently come from Italy because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. You remember I told you about this in Philippi? You remember in Philippi, I said Philippi was a Roman colony, and the reason that there wasn't a synagogue in Philippi is because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So Aquila and Priscilla had left Rome and traveled somewhere, landed in Corinth. And when Paul shows up in Corinth, here is Aquila and here is Priscilla. They're mentioned six times in the New Testament, four times by Paul, I think, and twice by uh, Dr. Luke. Of all the times that they are mentioned, they're never seen... Paul ministering to them. They're always seen ministering to Paul. They were this couple that Paul ran into who became an addition to his ministry team, and they literally laid down their lives for the Apostle Paul. And I'm under the impression that they were Christians before they ever met Paul because there was a church in Rome at the time. And if a couple with this kind of spiritual power had come to faith under Paul, we would have read about it in one of Paul's letters or here in the book of Acts. 
So it seems to be two things that brought them together. First of all, their faith, their mutual faith. And second, their occupation. Because you'll notice that Paul stayed with them because they were of the same trade. They were what? Tent makers. Apostle Paul was a tent maker. The word actually means a leather worker. It was used to describe somebody who made not only tents from leather, but also all kinds of other things from leather as well. Paul, this was his trade. This was a skill that he had obviously picked up from his father. And in that day, a Jewish rabbi didn't receive money from the people that he taught. He would work with his own hands to provide for his own needs, and Paul had learned to do that. And so when he came to Corinth, he started working with his hands to provide for his own needs. And look what Luke says. He was in the synagogue every Sabbath, reasoning with the Jews and trying to persuade both Jews and Greeks. So during the week, he worked as a leather worker with Priscilla and Aquila. He supplied for his needs. And then during the week, he would, or on the weekends, he would go into the synagogue and persuade Jews and Greeks and preach and teach there and then back into the marketplace to work with his hands the following week. Here's something that's kind of interesting about the Apostle Paul. And I haven't brought this up until now. This is a good point to sort of introduce this. The Apostle Paul in his writings, 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Timothy and other places, argued constantly of the right of a Christian teacher, pastor, preacher, or an apostle to earn his living from the work of the gospel through teaching and through preaching and to ask the people who sat under his ministry to support him. Paul argued for the right of people to do that. But Paul oftentimes refused to exercise that right himself. And he tells us that there are two reasons why he did it. Number one, because he didn't want to become a burden to any of the new churches. And number two, because he didn't want people to question his motive. And to say, this guy's just traveling from city to city, planting churches and taking up these large offerings, and he's only doing it for the money. Do you remember in 1 Thessalonians, Paul talks about how he had worked night and day with his own hands to provide for his own needs so he wouldn't be a burden to the Thessalonian Christians. And they had floated the rumor after he left, the unbelievers did, that Paul was in it for the money. And Paul says, I couldn't have been. And that rumor fell flat. They knew he wasn't doing it for the money. He had worked with his own hands and hadn't asked him for a dime before he left. So Paul worked himself to provide for his own needs in order that he might not be a burden, and second, in order that nobody would question why he was doing what he was doing. Look at verse 5. Something changes. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. What's changed? Silas and Timothy come. Now where were they at? Do you remember? Where were Silas and Timothy? Think back. It's been a while since we mentioned Silas and Timothy. You have to go all the way back to chapter 17, verse 14. Paul in Berea, then immediately the brethren sent Paul to go out as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there, remained in Berea. Oh, so they're coming back from Berea. Well, not exactly. Now here's something that Luke doesn't tell us, but Paul did. And here's what happened. Paul sent word back to Berea with the people who escorted him to Athens Have Silas and Timothy join me soon. That's verse 15 of chapter 17. While Paul was in Athens, Silas and Timothy came back in Athens. We know this because in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul says, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and we sent Timothy to you, to Thessalonica. So Silas and Timothy came back to Athens and from there Paul sent Timothy to Thessalonica and Silas to another Macedonian city, likely Philippi. Then he went to Corinth and Timothy and Silas came back to Corinth and gave him a report. And that was when Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians. Okay, I'm, just making, I'm reviewing all of that in my mind to make sure that I got all the, the names and the places right. That's right. 
Silas and Timothy went to Athens. They were sent away from Athens. And so their return in chapter 18, verse 5, is them returning from Macedonia. Timothy from Thessalonica, Silas from Philippi. And when they come back, they bring two things with them. What do you think they are? If you know 1 Thessalonians, you know what one of them is. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 tells us what the other one was. You get a hint of what it is because the, Luke says that when they came down from Macedonia, then Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word. What did they bring? Money. The church in Philippi and the church in Thessalonica had sent money through Silas and Timothy to support Paul and his ministry in Corinth. So then Paul could be freed up to do the thing that Paul did best, which was to reason with the Jews. So when Silas and Timothy arrived, they received an offering from them, and then Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, When I was present with you and I was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, that's chapter 18, verse 5, when the brethren, that's Silas and Timothy, came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you, and I will continue to do so. So they brought money back to Paul, and Paul said, that's it. He set aside the tent making. He said, I have enough to live on now. I'm going to devote myself completely to the Word. Now what I want you to notice in this text is a couple of things. First of all, I want you to notice how Priscilla and Aquila did not quit their job to become full-time servants under Paul. They were tent makers. And Paul was a tent maker as long as he needed money. But when the money came in, he set that aside and devoted himself completely to the Word. Tomorrow is Reformation Day. It's the anniversary of when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church in Germany, the official launch of the Protestant Reformation. There was Reformed undercurrents that were taking place before that, but October 31st is the day we attach 1517, the day we attach as the start of the Protestant Reformation. Do you know what one of the things that came out of the Protestant Reformation was? It's the Protestant work ethic. You've probably heard of the Protestant work ethic, but do you know what the Protestant work ethic is? It is a biblical, scriptural view of vocation and calling and jobs that came out of the Reformation when the Reformers restored this biblical understanding of God's calling and vocation on our lives. And the Reformers taught, and Scripture teaches, that there's nothing secular to a Christian. I don't have my Monday through Friday 9 to 5 job where I serve my employer, and then I have my Friday from 5 o'clock until Monday morning at 9 o'clock religious activities where I serve Christ. The Reformers said that's a wrong understanding of this. It's not just the people who are in service to the Lord full time in what we call vocational ministry who can be used by God to an incredible degree. It is all of us. Because all of life, my vocation, my calling, my talents, my giftedness, are to be used in serving other people for the glory of God. Martin Luther called it one of the ways that we love our neighbor. God has given gifts to doctors to be doctors in order to serve other people and glorify the Lord through serving other people. And so whether you are a cobbler or the President of the United States, your calling and your vocation is given to you to serve others to the glory of God. And the Reformation reestablished or sort of brought back to the forefront that understanding of calling. And that's what I see with Priscilla and Aquila. They never gave up tent making. 
And yet these people eventually moved to Ephesus where they hosted a church in their home. Paul mentions them several times. They had an incredible ministry that went not only to Paul, but beyond the borders of Paul to other Christians. Their names were known far and wide throughout the Roman Christian community. Everybody knew who Aquila and Priscilla were. Incredibly used by God. Yet, they were just tent makers. The second thing I want you to notice in Acts chapter 18 is the encouragement that comes to Paul. The Lord knows when times are dark and when we need to be sort of lifted up and encouraged a little bit. Paul had just come out of Athens where did he have a tremendous response to the gospel? Few people believed in Athens, right? Not many. Luke names a couple, says there were some others that believed as well. He just got done preaching a message and leaving a city where he didn't start a church. He didn't really have success in terms that, that we would describe success. Then he comes to Corinth with fear and trepidation. He lands in a city that is known for its immorality and its pride, and he says, I have to preach a message that's going to assault their pride and their immorality. And so what does the Lord do? He provides encouragement in three forms. Number one, Aquila and Priscilla. He runs into them. This is a tremendous addition to his ministry team. They would serve to be a tremendous encouragement to Paul while he was in Corinth. Second, the Lord provided provision. Because when Silas and Timothy returned, they brought an offering. And now Paul knew, I have enough money now. I can set aside the concerns of life and I can focus on planning another church. And the third thing that the Lord provided was good news from Thessalonica. Because Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, Timothy came back and he brought us good news. He told us about your faith. He told us about your love for us. He told us that you're praying for us. He told us that you long to see us just like we do, long to see you. What else could the Lord have given Paul? New companions, help in the ministry for a very dark place that he has to minister in. Because the Lord didn't see fit to take Paul out of the situation. The Lord left Paul there and wanted Paul there for 18 months. And the Lord didn't take him out of the difficult circumstances, but he provided somebody to sort of help him out a little bit. Second, he provided encouragement to the good news that came from Thessalonica. And then he provided the funds that Paul needed to continue his ministry. You know what I see happening in those first five verses? encouragement upon encouragement upon encouragement that's being given to the Apostle Paul. Why? Because 18 very difficult months are ahead of Paul in Corinth. Darkness, immorality, a problem church, people with more baggage than you can fit on an airliner are going to be coming out of their paganism and their idolatry and coming into the church and they're going to bring all of these problems that come when pagans get saved right into the middle of God's people. And all of that's going to have to be dealt with in Corinth. God doesn't always take us out of the dark times. God doesn't always take us out of the difficult circumstances. But the Lord does have a way of encouraging his servants in the midst of it. And that's what he did to Paul, right as Paul was facing a very difficult time in Corinth. And that's what the Lord does to you and I as well. He doesn't take us out of the dark times, but he encourages his servants in the midst of the dark times, in the midst of very discouraging periods of time. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the encouragement that you give to us in your word and for reminding us once again that you sometimes place us in very difficult circumstances and places to minister, and yet you call us to be faithful to your word and to the message and to look to you for the encouragement that can only come from you. Lord, if we are in dark times this morning, some people who are here, we would pray that you would encourage them and send the encouragement that is necessary and keep them in the midst of difficult circumstances until you have accomplished your great purpose in their life. We ask that you would do this for the glory of Christ and for the glory of your name. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.